Our scripture reading today is from John chapter 5, verse 31 through 40. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Welcome again to Christ Community. We're really glad that you are here this morning. And uh, my name is Bill Gorman. If I haven't met you, I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community. And as we uh, jump into looking at this passage that Emily read for us, I'd love to begin by praying and asking for Jesus' help. So Father in heaven, thank you that you have given us your word and that it bears witness to Jesus, that we may find life in him. So I pray now as we look at these scriptures together, that we would see Jesus and find life in his name. We pray this by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'd like you to imagine this morning that you were wrongly uh, arrested for a crime you did not commit. It's actually a, a capital offense, and you're arrested, and you're put in jail, and you're awaiting your trial, and, and you just can't believe this is happening because you know that you are innocent. And finally, the day of the trial arrives and you uh, come to the courtroom. You, you change out of your orange dress or jumpsuit into a, a gray dress suit and you arrive there in the courtroom and you look around and you, you see the judge seated at the bench. You see uh, the prosecutor at their table. You see the jury waiting to hear the arguments. You just imagine that the feelings that you would have walking there, like hoping against hope that, that the evidence that is going to be presented will free you. And you're going to testify on your own behalf because you, you know that you're, you're innocent, but you also know that people aren't just going to take your word for it. And you have three witnesses that you're going to call that are going to demonstrate your innocence. You have a friend who's going to testify that you have an airtight alibi that you were with them the entire time that this crime was, was happening. Uh, you have uh, this, this witness of, of video footage. There's actually video footage that, that shows the crime taking place and the person doing it in the video looks nothing like you. And there's these written records you want to introduce also of, of testimony from other witnesses and crime scene evidence that just shows there's no connection between you and this crime. 
So you give your testimony. All these witnesses come forward and they present their testimony. And you rest your case and you're feeling confidence and maybe even starting to celebrate a little bit inside because how, how could they find you guilty after all this clear evidence being presented? The judge dismisses the jury to go to deliberate on your case. And you maybe even start to, to feel that glimmer of hope come back in your soul as they leave. But then the jury returns to the room, not 60 seconds after they left. And you start to panic. They won't look at you. And the judge asks, what is your verdict? And the jury replies, guilty, Your Honor. And you collapse in panic and terror. This cannot be happening. How could this jury have convicted you after all of the clear evidence that was presented showing that you are innocent? That they must have some motivation against you more powerful than the evidence, such strong bias against you that they have already made up their minds long before the trial began. They wanted you guilty, and so they ignored the testimony that you presented. They ignored the witnesses ignored justice, and their verdict condemns you. And this is basically what is happening to Jesus in John chapter 5. Jesus is saying to the religious leaders, you have put me on trial. I have given you testimony about who I am. And there are three other compelling witnesses, and yet you are still rejecting and condemning me. And I think it's easy for us to, to look at that happening in John 5 and sort of feel the sense of outrage against these religious leaders and say, can't you see the evidence that's so clear of who Jesus is? But what if we sometimes still do the same thing to Jesus? Sort of by picking and choosing what we like about him making him sort of into our own image, our own values, our own sort of political convictions. That, that we love to hear Jesus talk about heaven and forgiveness and, and, and love and peace, but when it comes to him talking about money or sexuality or the high cost that often comes with following him or caring for the, par the, the poor and the vulnerable or loving our enemies, and extending them forgiveness just as we have been forgiven that in those moments we're so quick sometimes to say things like, well, we have to understand the cultural context and Jesus lived a different time and, and if he were here in this moment, you know, he would think about these things differently and he'd have a different approach to this. And we end up doing the same thing as the religious leaders and rejecting Jesus for who he says he is. And John, the author of this gospel, in many ways is, is setting up a courtroom all throughout his gospel. Many scholars have, have noticed this, it's that there's sort of this courtroom theme in the gospel, and he's presenting evidence all throughout, and he wants us to know that it's possible to reject that evidence. John wants us to know that it's possible to see all the evidence for who Jesus is and actually to reject it. I think that's part of the reason why he has this passage here is to show that the religious leaders, they're seeing the evidence for who Jesus is. 
multiple dimensions, and yet they are refusing to believe the evidence. And John doesn't want that for his readers. He doesn't want that for us. He wants us to receive the evidence and to respond to it with trust. Now, today is, is Palm Sunday, obviously. We had a lot of kids up here waving palm branches, right? It's the beginning of Holy Week. It's the week when we remember the time when Jesus was actually put on trial by the religious leaders and convicted. He, as a truly innocent person, was wrongfully convicted and executed. And at that trial during Holy Week, Jesus is silent. He doesn't answer the charges against him. But here in John chapter 5, this is kind of the trial before the trial, where almost Jesus puts himself on trial, and here he does give witnesses. He gives three witnesses. He does give testimony on his case about who he is. And so the question for us this morning, whether we are a Christian or not, is what will your verdict be about who Jesus is? What will your verdict be? This is our last Sunday in the Gospel of John for a while. Uh, we'll have Easter next week, of course, and then we're going to spend about two months walking through the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. Maybe you've never even read Ecclesiastes. It's a fascinating book of wisdom. We need to read alongside of Proverbs and Job and other wisdom books. So we're going to spend some time there, and then we'll come back to John later on in the summer. But as we look at this last message in the Gospel of John for this season, we see Jesus responding to the religious leader's reaction to his healing on the Sabbath. That's how this whole long conversation in John chapter 5 began. At the beginning of John chapter 5, Jesus healed this man who had been paralyzed, unable to walk for 38 years. But he did it on the Sabbath. And the religious leaders are saying, that's work. That Jesus, you could have waited till Monday to do that. You could have waited till, I guess in their context, Sunday to do that, right? You could have waited a day, but you chose to heal on the Sabbath. And they are so focused on that that they're, they're angry at Jesus breaking the law as they understand it. And we saw last week, Jesus first presents these incredible claims about who he is, that he claims to be the son of the father, that, that his word is ultimately all that matters, that he's come to give all human beings life. And we just noted that anyone making those kind of claims, that they are the son of God, that their word is all that ultimately matters in your life, that, that they are the only one who can give you life, that those kind of claims are either the claims of someone who is suffering some kind of deep mental health crisis, someone who is a, a total fraud, or perhaps actually is who they say they are. But they still won't take Jesus' word for it. He can see it on their faces, and so he continues, this is all one conversation, by presenting three witnesses. And if you look at verse 31, he, he says, I know that you're not going to accept my testimony. Look at this, verse 31. He says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. And he's referring, he's in this Jewish context in which the, the truth was established of a matter was established on, on two, at least two witnesses. So he says, I know if, if I'm the only one saying these things about myself, that you're not going to accept that. But I'm going to call three more witnesses to the stand. And the first witness is the, is the witness of a strange a beautiful life, a strange, beautiful life. And this is the witness of John the Baptist that Jesus calls in verse 32. There is another, Jesus says, who testifies about me, 
And I know that the testimony he gives about me is true. You sent messengers to John, and he testified to the truth. I don't receive human testimony, but I say these things that you may be saved. John was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. See, even here, Jesus is trying to convince them. Look, I don't ultimately need the testimony from another human being, but I'm saying these things, I'm pointing you back to John so that you might be rescued, you might be saved. Jesus' longing and desire for these religious leaders is they, they too would come to know him in a saving, life-giving kind of way. They said for a minute you did rejoice in Jesus's, or rather in John the Baptist's life and his witness. Because when John the Baptist showed up, there had not been a prophet for hundreds of years, and, and John seemed like, is this, is this the, the next prophet? Maybe is this the, even the Messiah, the one that we've been longing for for hundreds of years to come and set things right? And John had amassed this massive group of followers, but just as John seems to be at the height of, of when he would make a messianic move, if that was who he was, he gives it all up. And he sends all of his followers to Jesus saying, this is why I came to prepare the way for this one. This was John chapter 3. We had this message where John says about himself, he must increase and I must decrease. John lived this, this strange but beautiful life of challenging the status quo, of, of pointing others away from himself and maybe while the testimony of sort of a, this locust-eating wilderness prophet might not have a lot of punch or impact for us in the 21st century, Jesus has continued to, to leave us these kinds of witnesses. <coughs> Followers of his who are completely dedicated to him, who are willing to challenge what is the status quo, to call people to a more faithful relationship with Jesus, to take the hard but, but ultimately life-giving path of living according to Jesus' kingdom and his values. And there's a number of these people out history. I think of, of Frederick Douglass. And Frederick Douglass, describing his own conversion to Christianity, he talks about this. He says, finally I found my burden lightened and my heart relieved. I loved all mankind, slaveholders not accepted, though I abhorred slavery all the more. And so even though Douglas has this profound transformation of experiencing the love of Jesus, he doesn't shrink from calling his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to repentance and distinguishing the cultural Christianity that, that held up the institution of slavery from a true relationship with Jesus. Douglas says this, between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. He was a witness challenging the status quo acceptability. Another example, not 80 years later, the German theologian and pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer found himself in a similar context in Germany where a rising leader, Adolf Hitler, was employing the language of Christianity to support a nationalist movement against Jews and other minorities in the country. And Bonhoeffer called his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to a more faithful walking with Jesus to not be swept up in a rhetoric of Christianity that denied its core truth. 
we hear the witness of strangely beautiful lives of other Christians who are who are calling us to maybe see things in Scripture that we are uncomfortable with, calling us to a faithfulness that maybe we are not totally willing to, but we need to hear their voice pointing us to Jesus, to the life that's offered in his kingdom. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He calls a second witness to the stand, the witness of the supernatural in this case. And this is where Jesus continues speaking in verse 36, and he says this in verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. I mean, John's testimony is great, but there's something greater, he says. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. These works that he's referring to are these miraculous works that he's been doing, that John has been showing us in the gospel. The healing of the official's son who was dying. The turning of the water into wine. The many other healings at Jerusalem. And most recently, the healing of this man who had been paralyzed for 38 years that prompted this whole conversation. Jesus saying, look at these works that I'm doing. It would be one thing if I was making these kinds of claims about myself, but wasn't doing work that, that backed those up. But I'm making a claim to be identified with the God who is the creator of the universe, and I'm doing these kinds of miracles that only the God of the universe could accomplish by his power. Again, we don't have Jesus physically here in our midst performing miracles. We do have the testimony of them in the scriptures. But Jesus continues to leave himself with witnesses, pointing us to something beyond what we can see with our eyes. There's something more to our world than meets the eye. There is a, a spiritual dimension, a supernatural dimension beyond what we can see and taste and touch. Now here are just a few examples of where we find that. Because despite living in a culture that sort of says matter is all there is, we still have a deep sense, I think, of there's something beyond what we can just see, the material world. And we're, as a culture, we're drawn to shows like Stranger Things, right? I think fourth season's coming out soon, I hope. We've been waiting for that one, right? Or the writings of, of Stephen King, who sold over 350 million copies of his books. And again, these shows and these works aren't for everyone, but they, they show you something. <clears throat> that we are deeply drawn to stories where evil is not just human, but there's a supernatural element to evil. And one in which the story is one where evil is always defeated by the good. Or just this context of spiritual searching. That even though we live in a culture that is in some ways, increasingly sexual, sex, uh, what am I trying to say here? Not sexual. That's maybe be true as well. The culture is increasingly sexual. Secular is what I was trying to say. And the culture is increasingly secular and maybe sexual in its expression as well. But that as we have this culture, we still find a longing for the spiritual. That even though sort of publicly we say that we need to remain kind of neutral on matters of spirituality, that we, we've never been more interested in pursuing a whole host of, of spiritual expression, whether that's forms of Buddhism, 
whether that's looking at um, sort of crystal healings or exploring places that are thought to have spiritual power. If you go to Arizona and Sedona, there's these places of vortexes where people are going, they're longing, they're searching for a context, again, that's increasingly secular, and yet they find themselves looking for a place to experiencing something that's more than what they can see with their eyes. Another area that continues to challenge a purely naturalistic explanation for the world is beauty. A couple of years ago in 2019, the New York Times Magazine read, uh, wrote an extensive article with this title, How Beauty is Making Scientists Rethink Evolution. Sort of the, the tagline, the, the, the teaser line, is that the extravagant splendor of the animal kingdom cannot be explained by natural selection alone. So how did it come to be? And the article starts off by talking about the male flame bowerbird. And maybe if you watched, I think it was maybe Planet Earth 2 talked about this, <clears throat> these birds, and they make these incredible displays to attract a mate. They actually build these ornate little bowers, these little uh, displays, these little huts out of twigs. These birds do this. And then they gather all these different objects. And some of them even arrange the, arrange the objects in, in order from largest to smallest, all to form a walkway that makes themselves and, and their trinkets more striking to the female bowerbird. And here's what the authors of this article say. They say this extravagance is an affront to the rules of natural selection. Adaptations are meant to be useful. That's the whole point. And the most successful creatures would be the ones best adapted to their particular environment. So what is the evolutionary justification for the bowerbird's ostentatious displays? Not only do those displays and their colorful feathers lack obvious value outside of courtship, they also hinder his survival, general well-being, draining precious calories, and making him more noticeable to predators. You, they're saying you can't explain this kind of beauty on just a purely utilitarian basis. And the author of the article uh, interviewed Richard Prum, who's one of the foremost kind of scholars. He's an evolutionary ornithologist at Yale, and he wrote a Pulitzer Prize-winning book called The Evolution of Beauty, and trying to get some answers to why do we find this kind of beautiful expression, even when it seems to defy utilitarian purposes and actually maybe in some ways hinder the survival of a species. And he had a lot of theories about this, but when the author continued to, to press him on the origin of beauty, but why would this have originated in the first place? The article says this, to Purim it was an answer, or it was a question without an answer, and thus a question not worth contemplating. Purim said, not everything has an explicit causal explanation. And the author of the article says, his indifference to the ultimate source of aesthetic taste leaves a conspicuous gap in his grand theory. And the author concludes the article with these words. If there is a supernatural, or if there's a universal truth, rather, about beauty, some concise and elegant concept that encompasses a, every variety of charm and grace in existence, we do not yet understand enough about nature to articulate it. But what if Jesus is saying the answer can't be found in nature? That I actually made the bower bird and all the beauty and wonder and even humor and how this bird goes about its life and every sunset and every flower but I've left these as fingerprints pointing you to a longing for something beyond what you can see with your eyes. 
what will our verdict be? There's still one more witness that Jesus calls before he rests his case, and it's the witness of the Scriptures. For those of us who are here this morning, we are Christians, and we love our Bibles. This is one of the most sobering passages, I think, in in all of the Bible. What Jesus says here, verse 37. This is the Father who sent me, has testified about me. You have not heard his voice at any time, and you have not seen his form. You do not have his word residing in you because you do not believe the one he sent. And listen to this, verse 39. This is that sobering verse. Jesus says to them, you pour over the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And yet they testify about me, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Jesus is saying that it is possible to love and treasure this book without loving and treasuring him. That it is possible to be a Bible scholar without being a Jesus lover. That you can search this book, that you can read this book, that you can memorize this book, that you can read commentaries on this book, that you can study this over and over and over and and actually miss the whole point of it. That you can miss that, that what he is saying here is that this whole thing is about me. Jesus is saying every part of this book points to me. At the end of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus actually talks to a few disciples after he's raised from the dead, and he walks them through the Bible, showing them how every single part of the Scriptures points to him. And again, if this isn't true, it's the height of arrogance for Jesus to say that this whole religious tradition's Scriptures are all about him. But he's saying that's the claim, that this all points to me. You spend all this time searching these texts because you think that there's eternal life in them, but you're missing, you're not coming to me, who is the one that the whole scriptures are testifying to. In fact, this is why, I mean, you probably noticed you've been around Christ's community for more than a few weeks, that whoever is up here speaking, we typically pray just a brief prayer before the message asking the Holy Spirit to help us to understand and and apply God's Word, because we know that there is a way to read this book. There's a way for us even to teach this book where we don't ultimately see Jesus. And that it requires a work of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to come to Him. I remember the first time this passage really hit me. I was in Bible college, and I went to a, an evening service at a church and the pastor uh, preached on this message. I don't remember anything about the message. I just actually remember him reading this verse, verse 39. And I didn't actually, I don't remember anything. I don't know if I heard any of the rest of the sermon. But this idea that you could search the scriptures but not come to Jesus hit me so hard. So again, I can't remember where I was in school, but I think it was relatively early on, and I was kind of intoxicated with all this new knowledge of the Bible. I was going to school to be a Bible nerd. I mean, that was, I was like going to study the Bible, and it's what I did day and night, and I realized, oh, I actually think that functionally, Bible knowledge, being smart about the Bible, is becoming more important to me than knowing Jesus. Because Christians don't trust the Bible to save them. I trust Jesus to save him. The scriptures bear witness to him. So we have to be cautious. 
have to be aware that, that there's a way to read this book where we miss the whole point. And if you want to learn how to read the Bible in such a way that you, you discover Jesus in every part of it, uh, there's a couple of resources that I recommend to you. One is the Bible Project. It's one that we talk about a lot, but that's their whole mission, and they produce incredible resources that help you see this, the whole story of Scripture in every part, how it's a unified story, how it points us to Jesus. Another practical way is we're actually uh, hosting a How to Read Your Bible Better class right now at Christ Community with that goal of helping us to read and understand all the various parts and genres of Scripture and how they point us to Jesus. Uh, it actually started on Tuesday, um, but it's not too late. If you want to jump in this Tuesday and be a part of that class, you can. And uh, Pastor Dakota's running that. Just reach out to me or him and, and, and come on Tuesday at 6.30. We'd love to have you as a part of that class. So what will your verdict be. It seems to me there are basically be four possible outcomes that we could have, four possible verdicts. One is just to reject the evidence. I mean, that's what the religious leaders do. They see the evidence presented. Jesus has these three witnesses, this beautiful life of John the Baptist, these supernatural works that he's doing, the, the testimony of the scriptures, and they just reject it. So that's, that's one possibility. John wants us to see that's a reality that some people have. So you can reject the evidence. You can ignore the evidence. And, and this is where you just kind of decide to not look at the evidence. I don't, I don't really want to hear it. Or I don't really want to deal with it right now. We sort of say things like, well, once I graduate, it's kind of a busy season. Once I graduate, I'll get serious about kind of exploring Jesus or following Jesus. But for right now, I just want to have some fun. Life's really busy. I'll, I'll, do, that. I'll do that later. Or yeah, once I get married, then I'm not going to come back to church and kind of get serious about sexual fidelity and, and all that. But right now, that, that just seems like, that seems like an unlivable kind of worldview expectation that Jesus has. So maybe I'll, I'll consider that later on. Or maybe you kind of have the mentality of, of well, once, once I have kids or once the kids get a little bit older, then, then we'll need to get back in, involved in church. I think that would be good for us. But for right now, we'll just kind of wait. And those are all ways of ignoring the evidence or sort of putting off your verdict, which in many ways is the same as functionally rejecting the evidence. But it's more sneaky because you're not, you feel like you're not making a decision. But by not making a decision or putting off a decision, that is a decision in itself. But maybe you're at the place where, like, I want, Bill, I want the evidence. I, I think I want to look. I don't want to ignore it, but I, I don't know if I, I'm not fully there yet in, in being convinced by it. That, that's the third option, is that's to just explore the evidence more. Maybe you're not ready to give a verdict, but you don't want to just not answer the question. And maybe you have, you recognize, you have some cultural or personal biases against who Jesus is or his claims, but you're willing to explore more. And I'd encourage you, if that's you, to keep coming on Sunday mornings. That's what we do in these messages. We try to look at who Jesus is and understand the evidence for, for who he was and who he is for us today. Uh, maybe you join a, a Bible study, not just to gain Bible knowledge, but to, to understand who Jesus is, to come to know him. Or maybe you consider reading a book like Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin, where she answers what she calls 12 hard questions for the world's largest religion. She takes on some of the most compelling objections to Jesus and Christian faith. Everything from things dealing with human sexuality, to justice, 
to women. It's fascinating. And she gives compelling answers, thoughtful answers to these cultural objections. And then fourth, and this is the, the outcome that John is working toward, he wants us for us, is to, to believe the evidence. To believe in who Jesus says, to trust him, to give our allegiance to him, to follow him, to, to entrust our whole lives to him. To recognize that, that Jesus is the true and better everything in Scripture, that he is the one that every sign, every story is pointing to, that he's the hero of every narrative. As Sally Lowe joins the author of the Jesus Storybook Bible, says that every story whispers his name. And when you do this, your life becomes strangely beautiful. You begin to experience a world infused with supernatural beauty and wonder. And you will discover life in the scriptures because it's there that you find yourself meeting Jesus. Now Jesus put himself on trial here in this passage. But one of the big themes in John is really that Jesus is putting the whole world on trial. And friends, the good news is that if you are with Jesus, then his verdict for you is already secured. The judge has already ruled. The judge has seen that there is incontrovertible evidence of your guilt, and yet because Jesus gave himself as a substitute in your place, the verdict rendered for you is there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Father in heaven, we entrust these people that you have placed on our hearts for these 90 days, we entrust them to you. And we want to continue to pray for them, even after this formal sort of concentrated period ends, and be looking for the work that you are doing. Would you continue to make us faithful? Would we be the kind of people who our very lives are evidence for the goodness and beauty of who Jesus is? We pray this in his name, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.